Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Studebaker, Television, North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe, Rosenberg's H-Bomb, Sugar Ray, Pamu John, Brando the King and I and the Catcher in the Rye, Eisenhower vaccine, England's got a new queen, Marciano Liberace, Santayana, goodbye. Some of you may have already picked up on what that is a list of. It's the opening two verses of Billy Joel's famous song, We Didn't Start the Fire. And maybe you're already humming along, right? We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. You're just waiting for the chorus, right? I know, it's, I understand. That song is actually, a, it was cha a challenge almost. Somebody told Billy Joel, nothing really happened before the 60s. And so he went back and he wrote this nine-verse song about the major life events, major world events, I should say, that took place in the 40 years, first 40 years of his life, from 1949 to 1989. It took him nine verses to cover 40 years. How many verses do you think it would take us to cover last year? I think we could fill a whole song, right? A whole nine-verse song with, with just what's taken place in the last 12 months. And we've got COVID and quarantines and lockdowns and relationship strains and job lost and work from home and school from home and stimulus checks and elections canceled and political uh, upheaval and, and uh, racial unrest and storming the Capitol and elections and uh, the list could go on and on. And this doesn't even count like the things that happened in our own lives, surgeries, sicknesses, like last year was rough. We could, we could write a whole song about it. And it probably wouldn't even be all that difficult. Making it rhyme might be a little tricky, but. And I, I, it's worth being aware of this and just kind of acknowledging it because the last 12 months have been so upside down, so topsy-turvy, that we've been pushed and pulled in this direction and then that and, and just constantly back and forth so that we don't even know which end is up sometimes. And we just wish things would go back to normal. I have no idea what's going to be normal moving forward. And, and here's the thing, you and I have very little control over what that looks like, right? in politics, in the economy, uh, in, in society. We don't get to dictate what normal really looks like. But we can be aware of how it affects us. How all those things impact our hearts and our lives. That's the thing that we can control. And if you're anything like me, well, the last 12 months affected me more than I'd like to admit. And that's why we're kicking off a series today called Reset. We want to we stop and take a step back and recalibrate. Not just to where things were 12 months ago, but really to where God wants them to be. Now, please understand, that may mean that it's not necessarily comfortable. It may mean that you end up in a place that isn't where you were. 
But if it's what God wants, that's okay, right? If it's the, the baseline that God has for you and for me, that's better. Because ultimately what it means is that in spite of the ups and the downs that will come through life, and they will, well, they won't impact us as much. Doesn't mean they won't hurt, doesn't mean they won't sting, but they won't throw us off course and they won't flip us upside down on our heads and, and cause us to wonder which end is up because we have that solid foundation of Jesus and we are, are in line with God's design and desire for our hearts and our lives. And so today we're starting our series by, look to, uh, by looking at resetting our faith. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to, like, throw everything out that you've ever believed ever before. But I'm guessing the reason you need to reset your faith, if you're anything like me, is because last year was so turbulent. I mean, last year was just unprecedented in, in the craziness, right? And as a result, it, it shook confidence, it caused me to, to doubt things I'd never thought about doubting before. It caused me to wonder what was and what wasn't, what is and what isn't, about things that I'd never, never questioned, never doubted, never wondered. And, and really what that means is that it caused your faith to shake a little bit. Caused it to waver because trust and confidence, those are all connected to faith. Maybe not, maybe not your faith in God, at least not on the surface. But I think as we dig in today, you'll see how it really impacts faith even in God. Because it's, I mean, it's really not surprising that our, our faith was kind of shaken last year, right? The, the routine, the thing that was the most normal, right? It was, you could count on this five out of seven days a week maybe even six, that this is, I get up at this time and I go do this routine and I go to this place and I do that thing and then I come home and the routine just keeps going. And in almost a matter of 24 hours, that changed and it went away completely. And that really throws a wrench in what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to be and where I'm supposed to go and, and all of these other things. And then... The division, the uh, polarization of our nation reached, I think, probably a new peak, at least in my lifetime. And with that came massively different viewpoints. And, and normally, I, I think there's probably, like, depending on who you watch or who you listen to, like, there's a little bit of overlap, a little bit of intersection, and you kind of go, okay, the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. Except these two differing viewpoints had, were so vastly different that there was no overlap. And it kind of made you wonder, who do I believe? And what do I trust? Because if I trust this, that means I completely distrust that. And, and it really caused a lot of uncertainty and, and and if I distrust this, and if I distrust that, and I don't know who to believe anymore, I'll be honest, it made me awfully unsure of an awful lot of things. Which leads us to our first takeaway, something that is, is important to keep in mind. It's that who I trust shapes what I believe. 
Think of it like this, using a slightly less divisive topic. If you trust in John Elway, you have hope in the Denver Broncos. I mean, John Elway, right? Back in, the 90, back in the 90s, your faith was on rock-solid footing, right? Two-time Super Bowl winners because the greatest quarterback the Broncos have ever had. And then he retired, and they went through a lull, and then he came back as the general manager and brought in Peyton Manning, and they won the Super Bowl again. Like, if your trust is in John Elway, that well-founded. But then not so much. Since that time, the guy who is the greatest quarterback in Broncos history has not been able to find a quarterback to save his job, literally. And he relinquished the role two weeks ago. But if you believe John Elway, well, now the right guy's in the position, right? George Payton or Patton, whatever his name is. And boy, I'll tell you what, he's going to get this team righted and they're going to be in the Super Bowl soon. Do you believe him? As most Bronco fans know by now, John Elway was a great quarterback. He's a savvy businessman. He was so-so at NFL personnel moves. And because of that, he actually let a lot of people down who believed in him. Now, that's really not surprising, right? We know this happens. It happens to literally everyone. Even those people that we trust the most and love the most, ultimately, at some point, they let us down. They fail us. But the problem isn't knowing that it happens. The problem is expecting that it's going to happen. Because we almost get to the point where we expect people are just going to let us down. They're just going to fail us. Uh, happened again. Shouldn't be surprised. And that's a problem, not just in our relationships with other people, but because we become so, can become so jaded and cynical about it that we actually even apply that to God. And that's a problem that we really need to understand and wrap our heads around for a few minutes. So I want you to do something for me. I want you to take five seconds. And in your mind, I want you to picture God. Go. So what'd you see? Did you see kind of the stereotypical old grandfather, big white flowing beard, sitting on a rocking chair on a porch? Kind of feeble and maybe a little frail. He's got a little, little spring in his step still, but he's definitely slowing down. And he just isn't, you know, not quite as sharp as he used to be. He doesn't know everything that's going on, and he really doesn't have nearly the power that he used to. Is that the God you see? I think for a lot of people it, it is. And maybe 2020 made even more people think that. Or maybe you saw a God who's angry. And he's pointing the finger at you and he is vengeful and he is vindictive and he's got this entire list of all the things you've ever done wrong and he knows them all. And 2020, that was just a little bit of the stick it to you that's coming. I just wanted you to give a glimpse 
of what you have in store. Or maybe you saw a God who's just kind of overly lovey-dovey. And he's, he just wants everybody to play nice and just get along. Guys, come on. But he's really got no, no desire and no backbone and no ability to do anything about injustice or wickedness. Or maybe you saw a God that's kind of like you and is just too busy. I mean, he's got like the entire world's problems on his plate. Like all of the big stuff and all of the stuff from every single person. Like he's just swamped and overloaded and, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be surprised that he's really having trouble keeping up with my requests lately. What'd you see? It brings us to our next takeaway, and it's not actually a statement. It's a question. And it's a question that I want you to ponder, not just now, but I want you to to ponder this throughout the week. It's what do I believe about God? Because if you connect those two takeaways, who I trust shapes what I believe, and what do I believe about God, you understand how what I believe about, about God, who he is, shapes your faith. If you picture God as, as old or feeble or weak, or you picture him as, as angry and vengeful and vindictive, or you picture him as kind of too, no backbone and no desire to do anything about anything bad or difficult in this world, or you picture him as just too busy, you believe something that is wrong. And it's really important that you reset that picture and you see God for who he is so that you believe the God who really is God. To do that today, we're going to look at Psalm 24. We're going to take a, a work, work our way through it to understand who God is and what that means for us. We begin at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. That's who God is. Not what God has done, not what he's like, that's who he is. He is bigger and greater and we can even comprehend. I mean, think about it. If we took all of the, the wealth, all the assets of everybody in this room, if we took all of the, the savings and the retirement and the, the home values and the cars, and we threw in the, the trailer and all of our setup, and we took the, the property we just bought and all of those things, and we added it all up, I don't think it would come to one one hundred thousandth of a percent of the wealth of the greater Colorado Springs area. Much less Colorado. Much less the United States, and certainly not the world. And that's not to say we're a bunch of paupers who can't barely feed ourselves. God has blessed us. But, but think about that for a moment. God owns everything. Everything belongs to him. All the stuff. 
all your assets, all the things you're going to list on your tax return coming up in the next couple of months, right? All of it belongs to him. The land you're walking on, the air you're breathing, it's his. And that includes the people, the people on this earth, you, me, and everybody else. We are all gods. That's who he is. He made us and we are his. And that means he has a vested interest in us. He cares about everything that's his and all the people. And that means that I'm guessing we probably need to recalibrate our picture of God a little bit, right? I'm guessing that, that it was too small. No matter how grand you actually pictured him. Because, let's be honest, our, our brains, they start to overheat and just cannot comprehend that kind of grandiosity, that kind of like superlative descriptions. Can you imagine somebody that makes Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and all the other top 10 wealthiest people look like homeless people? Because that's God's wealth. That doesn't even begin to describe his power, his glory, his majesty, his wisdom, his knowledge, all of those things. They are so far beyond what we can even comprehend. It, it makes our brains hurt, doesn't it? Just a little bit. Like trying to grasp who God is. The beauty is God gives us some glimpses to help us really understand, right? I mean, we saw one... In, in the reading before from Mark chapter 4, the Bible reading, where Jesus was in the boat. And, and remember, half of his disciples were professional fishermen on this very lake. They'd been out on this lake countless times in hundreds of storms. But they were in a storm so bad that these guys were sure they were goners. The storm was so violent, it was swamping the boat, and they thought they weren't going to see shore again. And they cried out to Jesus, and what did he do? With three words, that storm that was raging, quiet, be still, went to nothing. Calm. And their minds, blown. Who is this, they wanted to know. And this, these are guys who had seen miracles. Jesus performing under, uh, all kinds of other miracles. And even they had a hard time comprehending what they had just seen because he had power even over nature. Wind and waves obey his very words. Wow. But not just wind and waves, not just nature, even death itself, right? Think of Jesus going and, and raising from the dead. Not, not like in a coma, but power over death death itself. These, these people had died. Their families were mourning and had gathered. Some of them were even buried. And with just words, Jesus called their souls back and brought them back to life. The God who has power over the thing that we fear the most, over the thing that means we are done, God has the power even over that, just with his words. 
Or maybe the, the example that's brought up so often, right, through, from the Old Testament, the one God reminded his people of over and over and over again because it showed his power and his love for them. When they were on the run and, and they were stuck between a body of water and, an, and a pursuing army, the Egyptians, and they cried out to God for help. And what did he do? He parted the waters of the Red Sea and they built up these walls of water. And the entire nation of Israel, two million plus people, walked through, not in swampy, mucky, bottom of the sea kind of algae, but on dry ground. Because that's who God is. That's a glimpse of the power that God has. And he wants us to remember that. He wants us to to see how awesome he is, how great he is. In fact, that brings us to our next takeaway. It's that God is greater than I can ever imagine. That's the God we trust in. And while last year might have been beyond the scope of anything we've seen in our lifetimes, God didn't stop being God. Every single second of last year, he was God. He knew all of it. Every single, every single detail was all in his control, all under his rule and his power. Which then kind of brings us to the question, well then, if he knew about it, and he has the power to do something about it, why didn't he? We'll come back to that in just a second. Before we do, let's look at verse 3. The question is then asked, if this is who God is, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? See, this, is, this question is kind of an acknowledgement that there are a lot of people who don't believe that that description of God is who God is. Like there's some concept, maybe there's some kind of supreme being or some kind of other, you know, higher power, but not like capital G-O-D, not all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, like some kind of smaller, lowercase g. Yeah, okay, you know, he knows a little bit and he does some things, but look at the mess. And, and this question is a reminder that there are a lot of people, more than God wants, who don't know that he is capital G-O-D. So the answer to this question, who may go and be before God, who may be in God's presence, is found in verse 4. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. That's who gets to approach God. That's who gets to stand in his presence. Those with clean hands and pure heart, those who haven't bowed down, who haven't worshipped anything besides God, who haven't put their trust as the ultimate in their life and in the world in anything besides God. And this describes no one. Not you, not me, not any other person that's alive. Not a single one of us can say we have clean hands. No, we have hands that are, are covered 
in, in violence, covered in, in laziness, covered in, in taking for ourselves. We have hearts that are, are filled with impurities, greed, lust, jealousy, impatience, anger, hatred. We all have idols. We just don't like to call them that. Those things in our life that we make the ultimate good. And I'll tell you what, if you can't think of what that is in your life, it's probably you. We are all, are none of those people. Not a single one of us can say, yeah, we get to be before God. And so the wild irony is, while we understand who God is and what God has done, we also realize he shouldn't do anything for me. I don't deserve a single thing from him, and neither do you. So when we wonder why the all-powerful God doesn't do something, I think maybe the better question is, why should he do something for me? Because I'm not that person with clean hands, and I certainly don't have a pure heart. So who can stand before God? Who can even bother approaching him? We'll look at verse 5. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. So here is God's solution. It isn't to spare us from all difficulty in life. Because let's be honest, what would you do if God didn't have you face hardship, difficulty, suffering, pain? Well, why would we need a God? I mean, we would, but would we remember that? Probably not as much as we'd like to say we would, right? So God instead had a plan. He had a solution. And it was to pour out blessing on people. Now that blessing that God pours out, obviously it's the things that we have and the people in our lives and all of the good things. But, but primarily when God talks about giving us blessing, he's talking about something else. He's talking about what the rest of the verse actually describes but needs some clarification. Because for whatever reason, this translation translates a Hebrew word, tzedakah, as vindication. Which is kind of surprising because 99, or actually 999 times out of 1,000, it's translated differently and with one word. And it's a word that actually helps us understand it a whole lot better. It's the word righteousness. See, here's what God does for his people. This is what God does for you. You will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, your Savior. See, the Lord takes, he takes these unclean hands and this impure heart and he washes them in the blood of Jesus. And the result is that they are clean. They are pure. They are righteous. Not because of our righteousness, our purity, but because of Jesus' righteousness that is yours. It's because of God, our Savior. And that's our next takeaway. 
that God makes me pure because of Jesus, my Savior. It's kind of crazy when you see what God's qualification is to be in his presence. Clean hands, pure heart. None of us has it. Only one person ever did, Jesus. He had clean hands and he had a pure heart and he could have just gone back to heaven and left us in this mess on earth where we'd be singing, we didn't start the fire forever. Even though we really did. But instead, instead he gave his life, his righteous, pure, perfect, holy life on the cross. He willingly went to the cross to take away all of the uncleanness, all of the impurity of our sin and pay for it all. And then he gives us his purity, his perfection, his righteousness. And you know how the Bible says he does that? By faith. He credits it to you by faith. For those who trust that he is their savior, God sees you as perfect and holy, which means you get to go and stand before him. You get to approach him. You get to trust in him. You get to trust the God who is above all. The God whose superlatives don't even come close to describing. The greatest words that we can think of still fall short. You get to treasure by faith this gift God has given you of forgiveness and salvation. And you get to live and love that God and long to know him more and more from his word. That's what God gives you by faith. The tricky part is God doesn't always do that the way that we think he should. Right? That's really our our last takeaway today. It's that God always works. Just not how I, just not always how I expect. The best example of that is the last four verses of our psalm for today. Let me read them. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord almighty. He is the king of glory. These words allude to something that were still a thousand years in the future when this was written. They're words that we say or sing as we celebrate that event every single year. The event is Palm Sunday. When Jesus, the King of glory, rode into Jerusalem on this humble donkey, something that seems far, far beneath him, and yet he did it because it was the fulfillment of God's promise. It was God's prophecy. It was Jesus announcing he was the Savior, the promised Messiah. And the people recognized it and they praised him and they cheered him on and they put their palm branches down in front of him. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem to fight a battle, a battle on the cross. The thing is, it looks like that whole episode was a terrible defeat. 
right? He's cheered going into Jerusalem like a conquering king, and the rest of it is just a disaster of epic proportions. Betrayed. How could he not know one of his own men was a traitor? Betrayed and, and arrested and railroaded and, be, and, and brutalized and tortured and crucified and killed. And it looked like an epic defeat. Until three days later, he rose from the dead, just like he promised. Jesus is the king of glory. He is God who is above all. He is God who is greater than we can even imagine. He's just not always the way that we expect it. The way we expect him to look or the way we expect him to work. So when the uncertainty of this world rears up, and I'm pretty sure it will again, 2021 is not like some great reprieve from last year. When that happens, when, when your faith is shaken, when you're unsure of, of who to trust because there's so much back and forth, when I don't know which end is up, when my routine gets thrown off again, when life throws you a curveball, just remember who God is. Remember that he is still God. And while he may not be working the way that you want him to, the way that you might expect, he's the God who knows all. The God who's working all things for your good and so that more people would know him as God, capital G-O-D. Trust that God knows what he's doing. Trust that God is bigger and better and greater and grander than even your wildest imagination can picture him. And above all, trust that he loves you, that he has rescued you and saved you and brought you into his presence through the blood of Jesus. And that's where you get to be forever. Amen.